Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to hopefully take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your two-ply, ultra-soft voice in times of supply chain disruption. This whole toilet paper thing is insane, is it not? I want you to know this is going to be a safe listening experience for you as that I am experiencing no flu-like symptoms and have not traveled outside the country for the last 14 days. Today, I'm so excited about this episode. Number one, getting an opportunity to record a solo over my favorite Pink Floyd song, Time. Time with Dr. Wayne Paprosky out of Rush Presbyterian Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. Truly a titan in the industry and the conclusion of our discussion on the whole idea of relationship selling, what it is, what it's not, and what I consider to be the three components of these relationships. Gave you a nice anagram to remember it by. Set. S is for subordination. Oh boy, making ourselves inferior to other people. That's awesome, isn't it? Not something you hear at very many sales presentations. Empathy, getting into someone else's world and really understanding what they're feeling. And T for toilet paper. No, just kidding. Time, time. What is time? What is time? There's been a million songs written about it. There was even Morris Day and the time. Time is, in my opinion, the voluntary subordination of your time to actively listen to someone else talk. So for the purposes of our discussion today, that's what it is. So subordination of time infers some intentionality, right? It infers asking questions, getting that whole process going. Remember, there's life in the interrogative and death in the declarative. One of the things that I tried to do with my son to get him on this road of having this conversational exchange is having him take my wife out on a date when he was like seven years old. I walked him through conversationally how to do all that, you know, the table, the chairs, the plate, the fork, all that stuff, paying the bill, uh, the tip, gave him $50, told him where to go, said, do it. He asks my wife out, they do the date. I'm so excited. My wife comes back. I'm, I'm ready for the debrief. I said, how did it go? She said, it went awesome. Walk me through everything. And then um, I asked about the money. Did he pay the bill? She said, no, I didn't even know he had any money. I ended up paying for it myself. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went to talk to my son about it. Just wanted to hear his take on everything. And before I even had a chance to ask him, he said, dad, I had such a good time. You know, you gave me $50 to to take mom out, but I would have done it for free. I started laughing. There was no teachable moment there. I thought it was worth the $50 just for the story. So the takeaway from that is that it is about making time, making a date with somebody, setting aside time intentionally, subordinating your time to spend time with them and listen. So actively listening, what does that even mean? Well, there's a couple components of that. Number one is eye contact, something I personally struggle with. I had a sales call with a surgeon the other day, and I realized after I walked away that I had spent all of my time staring at the ground while I was talking with them. I get distracted. You know, maybe there's something in their beard. Maybe their sideburns aren't level, something. I'm just so ADD that I can easily get distracted by other things in the room. Maybe it's my phone. Maybe it's my eye watch. Maybe it's the TV just behind their head that's got something far more interesting that I'd rather be watching at that moment. It's really easy to get distracted in a conversation. So make the eye contact, force yourself to do it, because you're sending a message to them that, hey, what you're saying is important, and I am listening 
to it. But you know what? We can make eye contact with people and still not be listening to a word that they're saying. We can be thinking about what we're going to say next. We can be daydreaming. We can be doing any number of things. So it takes a sense of forcing yourself to listen to every word, not interrupt them. I know plenty of people in my life that are what I call participatory conversationalists, and they will talk along with somebody to participate in the conversation. Now, that's fine if you have two people that are participatory conversationalists, but if you have somebody that's not and you're talking over them, they will oftentimes stop talking thinking that you're trying to say something and thereby cutting off a conversation where you could have missed something you really need to hear, but they never finished their sentence. So let's try to have discipline on what we're saying while they're talking. I had a guy one time that would repeat what I said, like the last five seconds of what I said at the end of the conversation under his breath. It was so distracting. I've never run into that before. So let's tie this up with just a quick note on caffeine, one of my favorite chemicals on the planet, but also something I've noticed that is my enemy when it comes to listening to people talk. Just try this at home. Four shot venti mocha with extra sprinkles and extra whip and just try to engage your significant other in a conversation and ask them about their day and then try to listen. It's hard, isn't it? Your mind is racing. I see reps come into the OR after slamming some bangs. They're almost unapproachable. And that's not a place you want to be checking in implants, is it? With your mind racing and just going crazy. So I have had to personally evaluate my caffeine intake, especially when I have moments where I need to engage people conversationally. Maybe that's the day for the half-calf, tall, flat white, right? Something to think about. So where is the why in all this? Why are we doing the subordination, the empathy and time and the listening? Is it just to get something out of people? Absolutely not. It's to bring value to the hospital and value to the relationships that are around us. There's a show called The Voice, And let's talk about your voice in the operating room for just a second and your voice in and outside of the operating room. Your voice needs to be one that people see you as helping. You're not there to sell or try to get something out of them. You're just there to help no matter what that looks like. So how do people interpret your voice correctly and hear context behind what you're saying? Your voice is absolutely a function of trust. We were taught as kids, don't trust strangers. It's something that's not granted. It is earned. And how is that earned? Where do you get trust from? Well, trust is a function of SET, subordination, empathy, and time over time. The disciplined, consistent application of subordination, empathy, and time over time will help you develop those relationships into one of trust. And then when you do say something, they will know where you're coming from and interpret it correctly. An example of this, just try to coach someone that you don't know. They will oftentimes misread you or mishear what you're saying, take what you're saying critically when you're just trying to help. So just know that trust is a huge building block when it comes to relationships. There's no shortcuts to this. I wish there were. I wish I could just go to a meeting and hear somebody do a talk and come back to the hospital and everybody totally understands everything I'm saying and where I'm saying it from. Just know there is no shortcut to this. 
It just takes time. Your business card can have AO consultant on it, senior account representative for Striker, or a president's club times seven. It doesn't matter. If they don't know you, you have to do this process over and over and be patient with it. Know that it just takes time to develop that voice and that voice of trust with these customers. And it comes through subordination, empathy, and time. That is what's going to ultimately bring value to the relationships in the hospital. I am so thankful for the interview with Dr. Paprosky today because I'm convinced it's going to bring value to what you're doing, certainly to what I'm doing. Dr. Paprosky is at Rush Presbyterian in Chicago, Illinois, and has quite the storied career. If you know anything about an extended trochanteric osteotomy, well, guess what? This is the gentleman that invented that. If you know anything about the Paprosky classification for femoral and acetabular defects, he's the one that did it. If you know anything about a gender hip replacement, him and Dr. Charlie Ng invented that as well. His name is on hundreds of orthopedic papers with information in there that I think can be really helpful to what you're doing in your job. So let's give a big welcome to Dr. Wayne Paprosky. Thank you, Kevin. Sir, I just got to ask about your career. I've been following you for quite some time, and you have such a significant body of work in not only the publication side, but the implant design. Uh, did you set out to do just that, or was it something that, that evolved over time? No, I didn't set out to do anything. I just wanted to stay in the country, and I didn't want to get deported back to Canada because my J-1 visa had expired toward the end of my fellowship. They missed the dates or something like that. Um, so, But having done a total joint fellowship, in the process of doing it, it was either go back to Canada and probably take years to, to, to get a green card to come back to get in the United States. And I would just ended up doing hip fixing fractures in Canada. So in order to stay in the country, guys in Boston set me up to spend a little time with, with Dr. Borden at the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Insull up at Special Surgery, and Dr. Mallory at Columbus, uh, Ohio. And after a couple of weeks with Dr. Mallory, um, uh, my green card came through and I came to, uh, got recruited to come to, um, to Loyola uh, in Chicago. And at some point, there was the, the transition to Rush. Tell me, tell me how that came about. Yeah, so I was um, doing a lot of surgery uh, uh, at the VA, doing a lot of revision surgery because that was part of uh, our obligation at Loyola. And no, oh, after about eight or ten years, um, I got a phone call from Doctor Galante one day. Obviously, Rush is down the street um, from Loyola in Chicago, and he said something to the effect that, "Well, I think it's time that you." come to join us. We have great research facilities um, um, and a lot of revisions to do. And I think we can um, advance your academic career um, uh, in a better way than than the limited resources you had at Loyola. And I went and talked with him and I kind of gave a talk in front of um, the, the group at Rush. And the next thing I know, um, that was it. I went to Rush. One of the uh, bullet points on your resume, sir, uh, was doing one of the first cementless hip revisions in the country, and I imagine that was in conjunction somehow with uh, Charlie Ng. Tell me how you two got together and what led to that first case. So I met Dr. Ng um, 
we had kind of a, there was a reunion from the New England Baptist Hospital, and they always have guest speakers. So a few months um, after my um, uh, fellowship, after I, I got my, had gotten my green card, went back to your kind of typical all-Frank uh, fellowship reunion in Boston, and Dr. Eng was the speaker, and he was showing all the these cases that he was doing without cement on the femoral side. And I hated cement, especially digging all that stuff out when I was a fellow. Also putting, um, putting, revising these, you know, 14-inch stems uh, or putting 14-inch cemented stems in for failed implants. And, and, and they didn't do so well. And he was showing, I don't know, I guess, five, five-year um, uh, results with the AML and primary surgery. And it looked looked pretty good. So I thought, you know, God, I'm going to go try this. He was mentioning more young people, but he did show some x-rays in older people with osteoporosis, femur, proximal femur kind of uh, uh, resorbed. Um, but also he, when he did put these things in the uh, uh, elderly patients with poor proximal bone, the distal fit worked really well. So after I got used to doing some of these primary cases, I thought, you know what? Damn, reimplantation with cement is, is, is just not the way to go. I see loosened lines early. So I just had Depew make me spit longer stems, and I started putting them in, and I had a really big volume because of all the failed cement cases at the VA in my with Loyola. And so it just seemed like there was not much to lose, you know, when, you know, if you – you're much better chance of not screwing up if you take something that's bad to begin with and you don't have much to lose. And I got lucky on, on this. And uh, um, within a year or two, we could see in growth. Um, so very, very quickly, I saw, I don't see any downside. By that time, Charlie had good follow-up on his primaries. And I said, once these things in growth, they don't seem to get loose. And um, yeah, so it was just, one of those things that just, you know, I played a hunch and, and uh, it worked. And the solution stem was born. Yeah, about five. Let's see, when did we start? I think we started that in about 88, 89. We developed that, put a curve in, bullet tips, antiverted, calcars. And that's what spawned the, the solution system. And um, Depew was really smart. Um, by that time, I had um, sort of got a pretty good idea of an algorithmic approach, and Depew was real smart. Um, after I had made a, a classification presentation at the academy, they ran with it, and back then there weren't a lot as many rules and, and conflict of interest stuff. No one really cared, <laughs> and uh, uh, and um, they went with it and made this brochure. That interesting at a, a Zimmer meeting about one of those dinner meetings about two, about two years ago, some guy brought this old binder that he had saved is all yellow. And, and, and the solution system absolutely in the way Depew marketed it revolutionized uh, femoral revision surgery um, pretty much uh, um, everywhere. And, uh, it just the the solution system really exploded, and I think that's really what uh, um, 
set things in motion in a very, very rapid rise. I remember reading about Charlie Ng. He had an FDA license to put cement in that you actually had to have that back in. Was that true? Oh, yeah. This was, you know, kind of before my my time. Oh, yeah. They had to go and um, they had to go to, to work with Charlie and uh, learn how to do cement and get a special certificate um, uh, back then in order to use cement. I think um, that was back like in 69, 70. So by the time I was um, finished, you know, into a fellow, that was uh, old ancient history. Total um, hips had been done in this country for at least 12, 13 years by the time I was a fellow um, uh, back then. The ETO taking these stems out, were you instrumental in putting that procedure together? Yeah, I actually was the one who developed the, the extended trunk osteotomy. We first called it the extended proximal femoral osteotomy, but I guess it wasn't descriptive enough. And my very first public, actually, very first publication and academy exhibit, it was titled Extended Proximal Femoral Osteotomy. And every now and then you'll see that when someone quotes our very first publication. But no, we were the first ever to publish it. And I just developed that one day when I was doing a um, periprosthetic fracture. I couldn't get the cement out of the proximal fragment. And I just said, I can't get this out. And I opened it up. So I'm doing distal fixation anymore. Anyway, and the light went on. The gender hip. Tell me a little bit about that. So um, we... um, we found that even though stem diameters increased, and most of the time that happened in osteoporotic females, and we had decided to abandon cement completely. Um, I haven't cemented a hip in probably 30-some-odd years. But we found that as osteopenic bone was was present, and we got into these 16, 15, 16, 70-millimeter canals, the, the offset of these... Um, uh, Patients stayed the same, the um, and their leg lengths obviously stayed the same. But implants generally got bigger offsets as they got more bigger in diameter, bigger base neck length. And we knew that was not good for uh, uh, for females. So then we we uh, when we really looked at the fact that women were not just little men. We thought, you know what, we need to change this extraosseous segment. So that's where we uh, began. We decreased the base neck length, decreased the offset, and uh, you, we realized we did not want proportionally increasing base necks and offset. And so it was, I, and in retrospect, it was based on the fact that we did not want to use cement. Stems got bigger in diameter. We had to adjust for the most common people to get these big, wide stems, and those were in those short osteopenic females. Now, none of it would happen if we would have just used cement, but by then I hated cement. Right. So tell me, as you look over the, the historical record here, what, what do you think the most seminal events during uh, the 90s and the 80s were for you? The things that really moved the needle in terms of uh, implant design, publication, uh, what have you? So I think um, for me, it was obviously the game changer and probably what revolutionized revision joint surgery was um, cementless, um, uh, cementless, cementless distal fixation and, and 
finally getting people to say, yes, we will bypass the proximal femur. Um, I think that was seminal, total game changer. And that's today is, is a philosophy. I think the ETO for getting all that cement, but also today and getting out some of those distally uh, on grit blasted implants. ETO, um, and then on the acetabular side, um, the bone grafting techniques that we developed, the um, number seven graft, and then the beginning use of um, cementless fixation, uh, the solution cup um, with perimeter peripheral screws in conjunction with these um, support um, allografts. That, I think, was the big deal in the late 80s and the 90s and got us in a really good position to then take it to the to the next level where obviously Trebekah metal and then that all changed but that was the main uh, to me those the ability to do revision sockets in uh, a cementless getting support with bone graft until the bone uh, grew in and then fortunately was able to classify all these with a with a with a um, algorithmic treatment approach um, as I was doing all this, so the classification system developed, which has sort of become the um, um, blueprint now for people to do revision surgery, both socket and femur. Absolutely. That was, uh, that was a pretty big thing you did there, sir. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was an amazing uh, 10, 12 years from about, I guess, 88 to, to 2000. It was like the Wild West. There were very little restrictions. Um, um, uh, you could kind of do all this stuff. If the stem was too long, you'd go down the machine shop and cut it off and, uh, you'd, um, do all kind of other stuff that I don't even want to mention, but we were, but in the end, it all, it all, um, set the stage for the, um, um, the turn of the century. Tell me about what you're doing now for your type one, type two femurs. And as we go into three, a three B and the four, uh, as you transition into the revisions, just uh, what's your state of the union right now? So right now for the uh, type one and two femurs, um, we've transitioned from the, um, the type ones and twos. First of all, it is the shortest stem, basically using primary stems with distal fixation in the type ones and twos. The, there are still some people who still use fully coated stems. I've transitioned away from fully coated stems um, because you know the small ones can break if there's ninety if there's no proximal ingrowth. The ones you know below fourteen can break, and the ones probably above seventeen modulus of elasticity is not that good. Even if it's titanium, then get some five pain. Well, that leaves such a narrow narrow window. So about 10, 12 years ago, I converted to a uh, monoblock stem. There's no reason, in my opinion, to use modularity in a type 1 or type 2. So the go-to in a type 1 and type 2 is a Wagner SL type stem, primary, the shortest diameter. I believe that if you've got to probably go longer, you're into a type 3. And when you get into a 3A, if you do an ETO, my recommendation is a modular tapered stem. 
if you don't do an ETO and there's not a lot of femoral remodeling, I think you can probably get away with the next length of monoblock. Um, do not use, in my opinion, you should never go with a monoblock into the that's longer. I think there's four sizes. Don't go past the second size. Too many things can happen. You need to go modular. And if there's a lot of proximal rodling, ETO is done in a 3A. My recommendation is modularity and modular tapered stem for all three Bs and fours. And that's pretty much, I think you can kind of take that to the bank. And that I've been pushing that for a while. And I think that's pretty much where, where the state of the art is right now. On your primary hips, if I'm coming up there and say, uh, Dr. Paprosky, my hip hurts. I need a, I need a total hip. What are you, uh, what are you doing these days on that front? So if you're your average male and, um, you're, uh, uh, or your average tall female who doesn't have a valgus deformity or a valgus hip, ML taper, but I, about, depending on your x-ray, about a third of you of, of males with really good bone need what we would call a ream femoral canal and insertion of a um, ML taper. Um, if you are a female um, with a high valgus deformity or high valgus hip, and some of them have that, those are a little different. Those are much trickier. We don't have the perfect answer. Um, my choice, and that, strangely enough, is still a, a, a connective um, uh, tapered stem, and I turn the neck backwards. And then in the short females, they get a reduced neck um, uh, ML-type taper. And um, and the osteopenic female, those people get I still give them a fully porous coated stem or, or cement, but I don't use cement. And I try to keep this podcast pretty implant agnostic. You know, I'm not here to push anything other than just to invite conversation and talk about this business. But one thing that you changed for me personally was the cup cage construct. I, I mean, we saw so many failures on the cage side. Walk me through that process of how you came up with that. I think that's just one of the coolest things for um, for some of these cup revisions. Well, so we were the first to publish that cages alone didn't work. When we did big allograft transplants, we we protected the um, cup with a cage inside the allograft, and that seemed to make it last longer. Um, then once we had Trebecker metal and augments. Um, we were able to do most of these cases just with um, augments uh, and um, uh, uh, Becker metal revision shell. And then, I mean, I wish I could take credit for this, but actually Dave Llewellyn uh, and Frank Sim up at Mayo Clinic were the first people to really put this cage over top of this. But then those seemed to be okay but um, some of the cages sort of were failing. Uh, um, so then we sort of went into this idea of, well, let's snip the bottom off and let's go with the half cage to give this supplemental fixation. So that sort of was an, a thing in evolution. But I, I could I, the initial concept 
Uh, the cup cage with the with the uh, TM was more of a Mayo Clinic thing, but we were the first to protect um, uh, to use the cage for secondary st- uh, support with inside of an allograft. So it was a bit of a mixed bag. Dual mobility. There was a paper uh, in 2016 that had your name on it involving lumbar fusions. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on dual mobility in a primary situation, in a revision situation. Uh, a, is there an age a cutoff for you with, with this technology? Just any thoughts you have about it? So there's really now two major indications for dual mobility. In primary, it really should, I've only used it in those cases where the patient has had lumbar fusion um, and or severe degenerative arthritis of the spine. Um, But you still don't want to use it in everybody. So um, we now, in those patients that I just mentioned, they get sitting and standing lateral lumbosacral spine x-rays, and we measure the amount of motion of the pelvis relative to the spine. And if there is minimal amount of motion, it means there's stiffness. It means the acetabular antiversion angle changes as you go from a sitting to a standing and can create a zone that becomes unsafe. Depending on that ang- sacral angle with respect to the pelvis, you decide whether to put that cup in more or less antiversion. In those cases, those are the cases right now that we we decide, well, I think we'll put it in 10 more degrees or 10 degrees less. We use navigation for that. And in those cases, um, we insurance policy is those people get a dual mobility. And it's not that there's anything magic about the dual mobility. It's just that I can get a bigger head in. And that's what we need to try and reduce the impingement because this is an impingement phenomenon. Um, it's not that, you know, um, uh, well, you know, if I, if I, uh, it's getting a bigger head size. And the only way to do that is with a dual mobility philosophy. That That's the, the main reason uh, uh, for doing dual mobility. In revisions, we use dual mobilities if there are some abductor uh, deficiencies. And rather than using a constrained liner in a fresh 3B acetabular defect or discontinuity, we'll use a dual mobility to try and improve the jump distance. So in the primary, it's for impingement in spinal patients. And the revision is to increase the jump distance with a great big massive head. Two completely different philosophies. Those are the two main indications now. But I believe dual mobilities are overused. And it's it's so, you know, people start putting them in, in everybody. So they think they're going to avoid dislocation. And that's the wrong idea. This is my rep side that doesn't totally understand uh, conceptually how you come up with this. But... You talked about the patient going from sitting to standing and tweaking antiversion or retroversion based upon uh, uh, what you think needed to happen to make that most stable. How do you calculate that? How do you look at an x-ray and go, okay, this one we need to do this direction, this one we need to do otherwise? Yeah, so depending on the flat back, those flat back deformities, um, you put a little less antiversion in the patient, and if they did it with, with decreased spinal pelvic motion, 
and in those patients that have less of a flat back, you put more antiversion. But we don't know the number. Each one of those patients has a sweet spot, and we have not figured out what that is. There's EOs, there's digitizing, there's all kinds of, of things. But right now, it's a matter of, okay, we're getting some that we believe will be impingement. Put the trial component in, move it, move it, see if there is impingement. Move it around. I, I play with trials in these patients, but and then I I I say, okay, this is my this is what we normally would put in um, 25 degrees of antiversion. Uh, and in this patient, I'm going to put 10 in. In this patient, I'm going to put 35. Well, rather than guessing on that and being way off, that's where we use navigation. So we say, okay. I put this trial in at 25 antiversion based on my preoperative evaluation, looking at the spinal pelvic motion. This is very, this is, I'm trying to oversimplify. This is a very complex thing that we don't fully understand. Um, but, uh, and then I say, so I don't exaggerate and put it in 20 degrees and then it comes out the other end. So it's, it's a work in progress and, um, we don't have all the answers yet. You referenced navigation, a lot of buzz about robotics in the OR. I was just curious, what is your uh, current model for assistive technology? Uh, are you doing things outside of the OR in terms of PSI blocks or uh, robotics? Uh, just, just walk me through what you're using in that, in that space. I'm using, uh, you know, simple navigation made by the IntelliJoint company. I've disclosure, I was involved in the development of this. We started about five, six years ago. So I'm using um, this navig, no robotics, navigation um, on the hips, and I'm just starting navigation uh, on the knees. I did some PSI instruments. Um, I mean, I... I I did that. Then I had to do a debate and I did a literature search and found there's no improvement, no better results when they did direct comparison. So I stopped using the PSI. And right now, if you check all the literature, the non-biased literature, there doesn't seem to be, with the exclusion of maybe uh, uh, uni compartmentals, there doesn't seem to be any big difference in the use of a robot. So, But navigation, at least in the hip, is is definitely you can link antiversion, inclination, leg length, and offset um, to avoid the. I think it's tremendous value in in the hip, not to put the parts in. I mean, not to get the parts stable, but to get them in the right position to prevent dislocation, increase offset, and leg length. Um, and on the knee, we're just still trying to determine. It's value on the knee. I've just started. You brought up the word dislocation. I've got to ask you this question. Uh, a wise surgeon once told me, uh, when there's an argument between the body and the implant, the body always wins. And you had a great paper back in 2018 uh, about the high rate of failure following revision of a constrained liner that's dislocated. And I've seen that a number of times over my career so I'm just curious what your thoughts are. This patient presents at the ED with a dislocation, and given that paper, is it is it wise? Uh, what's your thoughts on just putting another constraint liner in there, or do you switch gears with dual mobility? Uh, what's your thoughts? So we have an algorithm on determining why a patient dislocates. It goes one through six. It's been published, 
And uh, now one through seven, based on the spine, um, you look at position of the acetabular component, position of the femur, state of the abductors, number three. Number four is, is there impingement of any kind? And slash, is the spine involved in this? And then um, the next thing is, is there polyethylene wear? Is there something wrong with the polyethylene insert? And then finally, is this just somebody who, who um, alcoholic, senile, neuromascular? What well, you've got to come up with the cause. And a failed constrained liner can be um, um, acetabular position being wrong, impingement. If the acetabular position is wrong, you've got to change the cup. Put it in the right position. Decide if you want, then just go back to a conventional liner, dual mobility, or another constraint. Um, and uh, and then if it's if it's impingement, you remove the impingement. If it's spinal impingement, potentially, probably in that situation, if the component's right position, I would and the fail constraint liner. Uh, I would then go to a dual mobility um, if I can't find any other cause except spinal impingement. And then if the abductors are bad because of uh, tonginosis, they tore the abductors, the previous surgeon um, hacked them away. Um, in that case, and if the constraint liner failed because of abductor deficiency, I would go to um, dual mobility. So very, very strict algorithmic guidelines for dealing with that patient. I was talking with a very talented surgeon the other day who actually did some work at the Anderson Clinic, and he had done a tripolar uh, a week or so ago. And the first time I ever heard of that was from you. Were you the first person to ever try that? Yeah, we were the, certainly the first people to publish on that the Academy years ago. And it was when and I was lucky because um, I was with Depew at the time, and 40 liners had just come out. I think Depew was the first, Depew and Stryker were the first people to make 40 liners. Um, Zimmer was behind on that. And, um, uh, and so were all the other companies. And Depew had a 32, uh, a, um, a 32 tripole. That is, you could put a 40 tripolar on a 32 head and at that time we had a lot of fixed 32 amls that that's how they made amls for years and i had to revise the cups on those and I thought, oh jesus i don't take this damn thing out i couldn't change the ball so um i took i was able i i, I was able i popped a 32 um, you can see through the polyethylene, but I'd rather take that chance than rip on a, a fully coated AML and put it in a, a Depew th- um, um, uh, 40 liner. And then when they, they stopped making, I hoarded several of those <laughs> when they stopped making it because polyethylene was too thin for those cases. And they also had a 28, what they were using for hip fractures in little women. Um, and so, um, I don't know, it's like everything else. It just, you know, the light bulb went on one day and I, that was it. Protrusio, it's not the most uncommon thing in the world. And I think that I've seen Protrusio cups over the years. And at one point 
we started fooling around with just uh, piling up the basement with some graft and, and hanging up a, a scratchy cup around the rim. And, and I was just curious what you were doing for those cases. So just for a simple Petruzio? Simple Petruzio, yes, sir. I just, just put an oversized cup in it. The rim's intact. I just hammer in an oversized cup, put some bone graft immediately. Um, that's and But in a Petruzio, that's where I like to use a TM mod because it's got that semi-elliptical shape. Right. One of my followers on LinkedIn said, ask Dr. Paprosky about cones in the knee versus augmentation. Just your thoughts on that subject. So I've been putting, uh, and by the way, I mean, I've got to put a little plug. This, even though I've conflicted, I'm a developer of the Persona uh, uh, revision. It's fantastic. It is a game changer. Um, and uh, But having said that, I started using cones about seven years ago. Um, and little by little, just in the real bad cases with the perimeter cones, um, results were better. My bad tibias were better than my easier tibias because I was using perimeter cones. We didn't have central cones. Those patients did better than the ones that I cemented the tibias in, the lesser defects. We developed the central cones. I now, in 95% of my tibial revisions, gets a central cone, especially with the new system. And again, I know I'm... I don't want to be commercial here. It is it we're able to mix and match with all implants and all cones. And because the results, and Phil Noble and I have looked at this, the results of cemented tibial revision is far worse than the registries let on. They just talk about revision rates. They don't talk about pain, end of stem pain. They don't talk about increased radiolucent lines. So cemented tibial revisions have four times the failure rates of primary tibias, hence the use of cones in almost all tibia, all tibial revisions. Um, uh, Thermal side, a little different, maybe only about 25%. And I picked this up at a meeting with uh, an ISK fellow. It was presented to not go all the way out to the cortex with the stem on a knee revision because the patient could develop pain there. And he was a real believer in, in undersizing it just a little bit. And I was just wondering, do you think there's validity to that? Or do you like to ream and get good chatter on your stem fixation on your, uh, your knee revisions? Well, I'll tell you, if you're going to do cemented tibia revisions, that's what I did you got to get out and get chatter and get good fixation. It's not so much the stem causes the pain, a little bit initially, but it doesn't go away because eventually um, I think there's a little bit of shielding, a stress relief proximally, and I think it hastens the loosening of the, uh, of, of the uh, tibial fixation with cement, which is eventually going to get loose anyway um, if the bone is poor. So, Enter the use of cones, and you do not need to put them in as as tight. So let's say for every given revision, when I did cement, I was using, say, that particular cortex would get a 15. Now, every one of those similar cases would get 
would get a, a 14. So you just you just get it so that you just kind of get a feel. It does not have to go in as tight, but you can't have them dangle either. Okay. So, um, and I think the reduction in diameter may, you know, reduce stem pain a little bit. But the most most of these people don't have stem pain because it, once the cone ingrows, there's no metaphyseal motion at all and so then the cone doesn't the um, stem doesn't wiggle it's a concept of metaphyseal zonal fixation then if you put a clothespin in the end spline it and the clothespin closes that's even uh, a bet uh, even less chance for end of stem pain I'm old enough to remember when the giggly saw was one of our go-to instruments to take uh, an existing knee out, and I've seen surgeons use a double-edged uh, recip blade kind of as a powered osteotome around the knee. Are there any pearls that you have for the audience on how to remove a well-fixed uh, porous knee, cemented knee, whatever? So uh, I do not think the giggly saw is a good option. What I like to do is take a pencil burr and just outline um, uh, go right around the interface just enough so I get my um, uh, uh, recip saw blade in place. And uh, it's a combination of, of the use of a recip saw. I think that it, after you, but you've got to have wide exposure, a uh, no gili saw, <clears throat> recip saw, and, uh, and have flexible osteotomes <clears throat> available. It's a combination of those two things. But a pearl on the tibia. Make sure that you get that posterior lateral corner. And the only way you can get that is coming across the back from medial, which means major, major, maximally invasive surgery approach to get that back posterior corner in it well in, in, in a well-fixed component for infection or a porous component. Too many people try to get. They don't come across from, from the medial side because it's all less big exposure, takes more work, more time. That's the only way to safely get out. And you use not an osteotome, gili saw, uh, uh, recip saw across from medial to lateral across the back side of the implant. Tell me about the future, sir. I mean, what are you seeing out there in terms of bearings, biology, technology, anything that you think that's coming down the road uh, to, uh, that may change uh, what's going on in our world? Well, certainly primary knees, I think that I think there's definitely, you know, we definitely need to go in a non-osteopenic patient, patient who's going to live more than 20 years or more than 15 years, we need to go cementless. Um, I think cementless knees uh, definitely are the future. Uh, I believe that PS bearings are probably going to be a thing of the past. I've converted MC almost two, oh, through almost three years ago. So I think cementless fixation, no, um, no cam post effect in the knee. I think that will go away unless you need more constraint. Um, I think um, um, navigation um uh is is going to continue to evolve um whether robotics will come in i think for unis i think robotics will probably become state-of-the-art but depends on ex uh, expenses um on the hip side um i still believe that we need definitely um to develop a a 
a better cementless femoral component for the osteopenic uh, um, um, uh, patient for hip fractures so we can avoid cement. I know the tendency is to go back to cement because of cost and because uh, of some fractures in osteopenic bone. I think we don't have the right geometry of cementless stems for the osteopenic at the door C bone. On the um, uh, on the acetabular side, um, uh, it appears that with vitamins, vitamin E poly, we've solved the poly situation. I think on, for dislocation, though, um, we're still uh, still don't know yet. And on the and on the uh, hip side, I think on the revision hip side, 3D printing for acetabular acetabular defects. Some combination of 3D printed augments, some kind of a 3D printed, even a biflange or something, and and a 3D printing for screw navigation in revision surgery. And we're we're getting there. We're it's just not available for everybody yet. You switching from PS, that's been your go-to for as long as I've followed you. Uh, that's a big deal. So tell me uh, what inspired the switch and what, what have you noticed having made that switch? So, again, I was a PS guy for 30 years, and I've never done a cruciate retaining knee. I don't just um, – once I was exposed to Dr. Insull, what I learned at New England Baptist, they were all cruciate retainers. I thought, no, this is the way to go. But there was some, you know, bit of increase in loosening. Tibial uh, PS cemented tibial components, about three percent uh, loosening rate. Notice some of that. Um, if you put a stem on the the you know the obese more obese patient, the severe varus, well maybe that was going to help. Um, people complain of clicking, but purely accidental. I was doing a Zimmer course in Louisville, Kentucky some persona webcast about three years ago and we did a lab the next day and we broadcast the lab and and then and when my knee was done i was kind of there was another young guy can't remember his name he had a mask on i wouldn't recognize him i was watching him because i was done with my knee and and he was like look like i was going to do a ps and, and and he put a, a cr component on cut the cruciate interesting and then he put in this what looked to me like um, some kind of a uc or strange looking bearing i was familiar with a medial pivot but i don't know i just was i guess the guy who dr blaha who talked about i didn't really understand what he was talking about and i was happy with what i had and i watched this guy he put in this bearing i looked at it and i said wow this is pretty stable Use a CR, didn't cut a box. So I went and did two or three cadav three cadavers. Wow, this is pretty cool. Feels tight, a little tight, tougher to put in, but once I kind of played with it, wow, CR component, no post. Maybe won't have maybe I won't have to stem these big obese patients. Went back the next two weeks. I, I did a bunch. Two weeks later. I was convinced, maybe a little longer, maybe two months later, patients felt good. I examined them. They felt more stable. 
that was it. That's probably eight, 900 MC cents. Wow. And patients notice the difference. The, they feel, they do not have, they rarely have anterior knee pain. They may point to a Pez pain or something. They don't have the anterior knee pain and they do not have that mid flexion kind of feeling of, 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 of pain. And, um, Sort of that. I think the an, the, the anterior lip and the medial congruency we re, we re, reduce some of that mid flexion um, uh, um, pain that may come from some mild anterior subluxation during mid level stability. Patients feel different, and they don't complain of clicking anymore from that post. I see different things at different institutions. I've. S- seen this potion called Witch's Brew at Duke where they mix saline and betadine and peroxide for these infected washouts. And I've seen people just use saline. I've seen antibiotic-infused saline. Where are we at in the industry right now in that? Somebody comes in that needs to be washed out. What are you, what are you adding to your irrigant, if anything? It's betadine. That study came out of our institution, betadine, so I've kind of drank the Kool-Aid. I used to do betadine for years, then we stopped. <clears throat> now we've got a bit of prospective randomized study at Rush, and so I, I use, um, use, use betadine, and it appears, uh, um, appears to work. I've got to tell you, I um, uh, do... Most of the infections now I try to send off to the young guys to get them uh, get them started. So and that's kind of the uh, the thing. Once you most guys once they've been in practice for five years, they try to send those things off. I didn't have that luxury until <clears throat> pretty much just recently. I've been doing most of my infections, you know, until a few years. I just don't accept other people's infections. But if I get an infected. Um, uh, and a, a revision that um, was uh, 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 was sent to me. We did the revision, got infection. But I got to tell you, I do not have. I've been very fortunate that my infection rate has been royal. I am not an infection expert, and um, I, I think that I've been lucky. Down at Rush, Dr. Della Valley has he kind of got involved, did tons of work. That's been his claim to fame. So I've been lucky. Most of the infections uh, um, have have gone um, to, to to him. Um, so I I've uh, since you know I was when I was at Loyola, we were doing more than back then. It was we were still reapplying with cement because that was the way to go. So I am certainly not an infection expert. Thank thank God. <laughs> what are the top things that you know? One or two, three things that a surgeon can do to prevent. Uh, a post-operative infection these days? Boy, you know, operate on, maximize these patients, reduce, do not operate on BMIs over 40. Make sure that that diabetes, your hemoglobin A1C is under seven. No smoking. Patients have to stop smoking. Make sure that albumin level is, um, uh, is, is normal. That's, um, Check there. Check for MRSA and their and their nasal uh, passages. Make sure they have good dentition. Make sure that they don't have any sores on, on their skins. On their skin, um, optimize these patients from a cardiac standpoint. Um, optimize them as best as as you can. Those are the most important things. 
limit traffic in the operating room. Make sure you lose use clean air and spacesuits. Uh, I think I always use them. I still think you should use spacesuits. Clean air, minimize traffic uh, in, in the operating room. Use uh, uh, operator. You know, make sure your personnel are um, are uh, trained to do what 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 they're supposed to do. I heard a rumor out there, doctor, and we're totally switching gears here. But you were once a wide receiver on a football team. Yeah, I was a wide receiver in the CFL. Played for two years. Yep. What got you out of that? Was it decision? I want to go the medical route, or what? What happened? Yeah, I got an I had gotten accepted in the medical school, and I was going to try and do both because up in Canada, the season starts earlier because of the cold weather. <clears throat> Our season ends a month earlier because. You you cannot you can't play out in Winnipeg and and in Edmonton <clears throat> you can't play in December out there it's just, it would be it makes Green Bay look like Florida and um, and uh, and so I that was uh, my father helped me make that decision he said you know well I think you're an idiot um, if you continue on doing this you know average we looked at the statistics average. <laughs> um, Pro lifespan at that time, a guy still playing was about three point four years. He says, "You know, you're this is going to be tough." And I had thought about, it and it wasn't going to fly. So that was, was the uh, uh, was the end of it. But yeah, I was uh, what was this, uh, a fast white guy, I guess. <laughs> I can only imagine catching a football in that weather would be somewhat akin to catching a safe. Yeah, I remember the first punt I, I received in Winnipeg, I dropped it. I just couldn't feel my hand. It was just, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, um, it was a good fourth. Like, um, and they're really, the only, was that it was playing, you know, there were, when you go out west, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Saskatchewan, and Winnipeg. East was like being here. It's no different. And <clears throat> Winnipeg and Minnesota were probably, uh, but, uh, uh, but, you know, you had, you know, oh, you know, again, I mean, you, you just had, it just started earlier, but, you know, back then there were no domes and, and uh, you know, Green Bay was, was cold, but I mean, it just was that next level up, up there. It's next level of cold. Yeah. So it was, it was a great time. It was a wonderful time. I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I played when Joe Theismann was up there before he came back to the NFL, still wagon. And then after me, Warren Moon and those guys, big, you know, Doug Flutie came and became a real star. But this was late, a little bit later. Well, quite a bit later. I also understand that uh, you are the captain of your own boat there. So I know Charlie Ng was really big in sailboat. I didn't know if you were a are you a power guy? Are you a sailboat? Yeah, I, I, I have a 60-foot Pershing that goes 60 miles an hour, and I'm my, my own captain. Yeah, I've always liked that. So I'm, you know, not, many, not very many people captain those large boats, but I grew up around the water in the Windsor, Detroit area, so that's, um, that's, uh, that's been a good deal. I, I lived in South Florida for some time and became quite the – the boat lurker and Pershings are just absolutely beautiful. They look like a, they look like a bullet. Yeah, and they go. The guy got three thousand horsepower, twin fifteen hundred turbo mans. Um, it's one of the fastest Pershing they made. They made, and uh, it was a custom boat that a guy made, and 
after six months, he wanted a bigger one. And I was in the right place at the right time, and I grabbed it. Now, the engine on that boat, that's a surface drive, right? Surface drives, and it's a twin 1500 turbo man's put out about 25 pounds of boost. And when that first turbo kicks in, it sounds like a 747 taken out. The high pitch whistle sounds just like a, well, it's a turbo. And, um, and those props are 32 inch props. Yeah, the prop, the propel, the propellers are a, a prepare about fifty grand for a pair of people. But there, it's an amazing machinery, and you know the fact that something seventy thousand pounds can tweak, you know, sixty miles an hour is pretty impressive. Uh, you've seen so many reps over your career. What makes a good rep? What makes a a, a good rep versus a great rep, so to speak? availability availability is the most important thing and these are not reps i don't want a rep i want a resource person i want somebody who knows everything about what implants that he has and i want him to know more than i do about the implant and the instruments even if i've designed it uh affability is important but it's mostly availability providing a resource and a good personnel and be able to get along with the OR staff and fellows. So, you know, it, and that's where the affability or attitude comes in. And that that's, and um, the only people in the past, you could exist because it was more of a salesman. Now, if you are not fully knowledgeable, your career is over. You've got to know as much or more. You've got to know more than 90% of the surgeons or your career will not last more than six months. I've been calling it a giggly saw for 28 years and nobody has corrected me once. So I'm, I'm so glad to finally get that cleared yes. up. Gigli, it was the uh, Italians first developed it to cut legs off back in some war in the 17 or 1800s, I think. Dr. Paparoski, thank you so much for uh, bringing your your wealth of uh, experience and knowledge to the show today. I know my audience as well as I are just so thankful you took time out of your day to to come visit. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been good. It's been fun. All right. I'm glad to come out and visit you. Okay. Thank, thank you so much, All right. sir. All right. Bye-bye. Wasn't that awesome? What a privilege and an honor to speak to one of the titans of the industry and just getting to listen to him uh, share his life with us. What an awesome thing. I love what Dr. Poprosky said about us having to be reps that bring value to the operating room in this new environment we find ourselves in. I left a little Easter egg in that interview that some of you may have noticed, and it was about the boat. We talked about things that you were wondering to yourself, why are we talking about surface drives? Why are we talking about Pershings and all that stuff? What does that have to do with extended trochanteric osteotomies? Well, if you know the answer to why I left it in there, I want you to submit your answer this coming week to devicenation at protonmail.com. The first person with the winning entry will get sent to them a cheesy Myrtle Beach tourist t-shirt. And it's going to actually 
introduce us into our next segment next week. Be thinking about that this week, and I look forward to hearing your answers. So last note on value. This is our homework assignment, and I'm looking at myself as well on this, is that we're going to look for ways to invest time in our customers, and then that time will offer opportunities to listen, opportunities to show empathy, opportunities to subordinate ourselves to our customers. And then that will, at the end of the day, bring value to these relationships. S-E-T. Practical ways of doing this. Uh, If I have a mid-morning case, I will go there as if it's a first case so I can have breakfast with the staff. And purposely do not talk about products that I sell. I try to do the same thing on the HCP side. So maybe that'll help you. Just look for opportunities to engage people in a non-product related setting. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you taking time out to listen to this episode today. And I look forward to being together with you next week. This is Kevin Brown saying good selling and hope you have a great week.